Again, podcast subscribers and new listeners, this is your Monday Bleeding Edge update from What's Up Doc for the North Central Arkansas region. And today we're going to deal with the rest of Arkansas, the United States, and even some of the world. So from the Wall Street Journal this week, we see we've gone from Sweden last week that I discussed to Vietnam. Vietnam had its first cases in months after an outbreak in Da Nang over the last few weeks. After 250 cases for the whole country between March the 7th and March 31st, they locked down their entire country, and only 200 cases were found in Vietnam from March 31st to July 27th. And now we've had as many in the last two weeks as those previous 20. One reporter named Naharika Mandana, the Southeast Asia Bureau Chief of the Wall Street Journal, stated, It's not as easy to keep the virus under control with strict government actions and vigilant citizen behaviors. Coronavirus finds a way to come back. She talked about new measures and a whole nother round of lockdowns. And she stated that like other countries such as Australia, Japan, and the Hong Kong section of China, places where measures were so very stringent, a new outbreak shows that this virus is not easy to control. Just a month earlier, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, had had a headline, Vietnam's success in containing COVID-19 offers a roadmap for other developing countries. We have seen over the last few weeks what has happened to many of these developed countries and now developing countries as they had severely tight lockdowns for those months and still are not able to control this virus. Dr. Fauci uh, on 731, July the 31st, in a congressional hearing, when asked by one of the congressmen about the United States and our current increase in cases, stated, we didn't shut down to the level of 95% like countries like Europe and Australia, who uh, we only functionally shut down, he stated, by about 50%. He said, when we opened up the country, we had a surge from about 20,000 cases a week up to 70,000 from the previous rates that were lower. But now we see, as stated above, many of these countries in Europe and Asia with a resurgence despite the very lockdowns that Dr. Fauci states caused our resurgence. And I agree with him that that resurgence was bound to happen as people tired after three months of the lockdowns and some of the initial stay-at-home orders. But the U.S., without stringent lockdowns, has been decreasing cases since July the 24th, and death rates have decreased since July the 31st. Now, with the information that we have right now, we're starting to see that lockdowns may not work as everyone had thought, and we discussed that regarding the Nordic countries, Sweden and Belgium and others, and there's a new horror story out of Belgium I'll discuss later out of the New York Times. Actually, let's go ahead and get to that. On 8-8, Monica Pronzuk and several other authors discussed the following, and the the headline stated, the elderly in Europe were left to die. And I would add, much as critics say, that occurred in New York. Ms. Pronzik goes on to say that in Belgium, which we on the the What's Up Doc discussed last Friday, she states that the elderly were denied care 
even when available ICU beds were at still 45% open capacity. Belgium now has, she says, by some measures, the world's highest coronavirus death rate, in part because of nursing homes. More than 5,700 nursing home residents have died, according to newly published data. During the peak of the crisis, from March through mid-May, residents accounted for two out of every three coronavirus deaths. And we see somewhat the same pattern in our country, but it's been very, very prominent in Belgium and some of these other European countries. This story, she says, is much the same in Spain and the U.K., My comment is, folks, this is soft euthanasia. America, don't choose Western European socialized medicine because this is what you get. In the New York Times, two Yale professors of immunobiology, Dr. Iwasaka and Dr. Medzitov, discussed this week some of the new questions about vaccines. And the headline was, are you worried about coronavirus vaccine not working? Don't worry so much. They write, within the last couple of months, several scientific studies have come out, some peer-reviewed and others not, indicating that the antibody response of people infected with SARS-CoV-2 virus dropped significantly within two months. This news has sparked fears, they say, that the very immunity of patients with COVID-19 may be waning quickly, dampening hopes for developing an effective and durable vaccine. Now, folks, I have discussed the fact that just because your vaccination doesn't cause obvious antibody presence in your blood, those T cells, for example, those T cells which AIDS patients don't have anymore or don't function well, those T cells have memory. And these two Yale immunobiologists go on to discuss this. They say these concerns are confused and mistaken. That antibodies decrease once an infection recedes isn't a sign that they're failing. It's a normal step in the usual course of an immune response. Nor does a waning antibody count mean waning immunity. The memory B cells, as I said, T cells, they focus on B cells that produce the actual antibodies, that first produce those antibodies are still around and standing ready to churn out new batches of antibodies on demand. Given the severe consequences of COVID-19 for many older patients, as well as the disease's unpredictable course and consequences for the young, the only safe way to achieve herd immunity is through vaccination. We discussed that about two weeks ago here on What's Up, Doc. They go on to say that, combined with the fact that SARS-CoV-2 appears not yet to have developed any mechanism to evade detection by our adaptive immune system, that's an ample reason to double down on efforts to find a vaccine fast. For example, a lot of the time, the HIV and other vaccines that we've tried, the virus seems to be able to modify itself so that it's not amenable or able to produce immunity that causes a detectable response and the virus then evades the immune system. That's just an example. They say, so don't be alarmed by reports about COVID-19 patients dropping antibody counts. Those are irrelevant to the prospects of finding a viable vaccine. And they end with, remember, instead that more than 165 vaccine candidates already are in the pipeline, some showing promising early trial results, and I've shared those with you as early as a month ago. To combine with that, the New England Journal of Medicine, to turn to some of the medical journals, on July the 28th showed that both mRNA-based and adenovirus-based COVID-19 vaccines were able to protect non-human primates against direct SARS-CoV-2 challenge. So in primates, that when a vaccine was given, 
those primates did not get COVID disease. So this is good news, and this is the kind of phase three trial information that we're now seeing in humans. On August the 9th, in the New England Journal of Medicine from the Physician's First Watch, this headline was published, COVID-19, Most Efficacious Face Masks, and they follow with a partial discussion of multisystem inflammatory syndrome in U.S. children. Amy uh, Herman, uh, and this was edited by Dr. Sofair, MD, MPH, uh, was discussing one of the studies recently done, uh, one of numerous ones in the journal Science Advances concerning masks. And here's their quote. Most efficacious face masks, N95, surgical, polypropylene, and handmade cotton face masks, all appear efficacious for blocking respiratory droplets. I'm going to read some of the specifics. Researchers tested the efficacy of 14 different mask types as follows. A male wearing each mask repeatedly spoke the words, stay healthy people, toward a laser beam inside a dark box. In early June or late May, you'll remember that I showed you film of uh, Russian researchers looking at aerosols and droplets with this very model of speaking into a passive um, flow box to see what happened with droplets as well as aerosols. This study was not done in Russia. This was a follow-up study. Droplets, they say, that pass through the laser-scattered light, which was recorded with a an iPhone 11 Pro cell phone camera, and a computer program then counted the droplets in the video. The Russian study counted not only droplets of large and small type, but they counted aerosols floating in the air for up to 80 minutes. For reference, the authors say the speaker did the same while not wearing a mask. N95 masks were the most efficacious, followed by surgical masks, then polypropylene masks, and handmade cotton face coverings. Other masks were less efficacious. In particular, gator-type fleece coverings seemed to spread larger respiratory droplets into numerous smaller droplets. Of this, the researchers write, Considering that smaller particles are airborne longer than large droplets, the use of such a mask might be counterproductive. Man, I'm tired of being right. And on to multisystem inflammatory syndrome, a little more somber note in children. This is called or abbreviated MIS-C, and many of you have heard about this in, in children. But m- most don't know that this is segmented to a particular a type of child, and you'll see what that is as far as a health status. As of late July, 570 cases of MISC, multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, have been reported to the CDC. Patients ranged in age from two weeks to 20 years, and nearly three-fourths were Hispanic or black. Most common underlying condition that was present was obesity. We've discussed the fact that obesity seems to be the primary actor in the inflammatory response of adults, and that was studied in Seattle. The first 24 ICU cases all either were pre-diabetic, diabetic, and almost all were obese or were pre-obese. So we're seeing the same pattern in children. They go on to say that some 86% of patients had at least four organ systems involved, most often gastrointestinal, cardiovascular, and then dermatologic. The researchers identified three classes of this multi-inflammatory system uh, disease, and they had class one, which was an average nine years of age, class two, which was a median of 10 years of age, and then class three, which is a median of six years of age. 
The class 1 children were those that had shock symptoms and cardiovascular dysfunction with elevated inflammatory markers, much like an adult with sepsis. Class 2 were children that had the respiratory symptoms typically seen in older patients with COVID, such as cough, shortness of breath, and oxygen uh, deprivation and need for supplemental oxygen. The class 3 children primarily were those that just had dermatological conditions or inflammatory skin conditions such as hives and the like. It was interesting to note that the mortality rate was only 0.5% in these children with this inflammatory syndrome if they had the cardiovascular side effects, but it increased tenfold to 5.3% with the children who presented with shortness of breath, severe cough, oxygen deprivation, and need for supplemental oxygen, and no child died that had class 3, which was only the dermatological condition. So we see that the predisposing condition, it seems, in so much of what's going on, if you're not extremely elderly, and of course those that are chronically ill in retirement age, is obesity. Now we know that the rates of obesity in Hispanic and black children are higher, and this is associated with poverty and poor dietary choices, plus cultural factors. But I think that we all need to realize that just as we share with our patients every day, obesity is an inflammatory condition that can be reduced by orders of magnitude by just losing 10 kilograms or 22 pounds. And we see distinct improvements at 22, 44, and 66 pounds. I have a patient right now who at every one of those steps stated that they felt lighter, better, less stiff. So we're going to see ongoing research in this, but that's the, this is the first good study that I've seen that discussed the classes, the mortality rates, and the primary actors in children with this multi-inflammatory uh, system condition. Now, on the weekend in August 8th, the editors of the New England Journal of Medicine and Journal Watch made a brief statement uh, about the plausibility of asymptomatic patients, and I thought it was interesting. This week, a study suggested that SARS-CoV-2 viral load may be just as high in asymptomatic as symptomatic patients, giving biological plausibility, they say, to transmission from those without symptoms. Now, we know that that's happened. We know that somewhere between 9 and 45% of cases are transmitted by those who didn't know they had the disease. So we see this ongoing uh, research and discussion about why it's important to wear a mask to protect others. And we see that asymptomatic people do have a significant spread and there is significant virus. What's interesting, as we discussed last Friday, was that children who have high viral loads just don't tend to pass this on to adults. There's something about children, of course, more that are thin uh, and healthy rather than the obese and unhealthy children. But we see that children just don't seem to be the vectors, and this is one of the major differences between SARS-CoV-2 virus and the influenza and even novel influenza viruses. Another study they made a brief comment on is elsewhere they state a magnetic resonance imaging study showed cerebral changes in COVID-19 patients months after recovery. And they also noted that researchers now report that new cancer diagnoses in the U.S. have dropped during the pandemic. And I think we all realize that's because older people were afraid and have stopped getting their wellness visits. And we're trying to encourage them because we believe that long term, the death rates from not getting your health care, not going to the ER with chest pain or pneumonia, not getting your colonoscopies, mammograms, um, annual gynecological screenings, your colorectal screenings, colonoscopies. This all may cause more death in the long run 
than COVID would have during this time. But we just won't know until we see some of these longitudinal studies that go out 18 months to even 15 to 20 years. Now, some cultural updates. In the Wall Street Journal, uh, office redesign was discussed, and I take this from a video and quotes from that video. Architects, CEOs, and Harvard professors from Miami to New York and Boston noted the following. With every major event that we see in our culture, we see an impact on office design. 9-11, superstorms, and now we're discussing things like a new environment of thermal scanners, one-way hallways, a touchless entry uh, to an, a, a building and then to the elevators, plexiglass dividers between workstations, less than 50% office capacity on every floor in one major developer in New York City, small social distancing devices that employees wear, automatic contact tracing devices employees are required to wear, mobile workstations that can be altered and changed based on if there's a pandemic or post-pandemic, non-recirculating AC and heating systems, uh, new filters for air conditioning systems, UV radiation devices in each room, separate ventilation zones for clients versus employees, uh, and then zoned employee and client areas with separate entrances, isolation rooms. And they go on to talk about retrofits of buildings and redesigns of buildings that were about to be built. Offices are also being redesigned for an uncertain future, they say, where, quote, Health is the focus, even if COVID-19 is longer a threat. An example was RxR Realty, uh, which is a multi-billion dollar realty corporation in New York City. And they say this is what they call the new abnormal. Uh, Check-in apps, clearing apps for you to come to work. And they say the goal is to ensure that people aren't coming in sick. And that's from the CEO. Uh, A Harvard professor who's an architect teacher uh, and an active architect said there's no such thing as no risk. And there has to be a good reason, though, to bring people back to work. That's Holly Samuelson. From Vox, uh, Eleanor Cummings wrote on July the 22nd, 25 to 30 percent of the workforce working at home by multiple days of the week is expected by the end of 2021, with 82 percent of the workforce working from home some of the time. And that's from a global workplace analysis. A note is that of nearly 3,000 employees in that global work-at-home survey, uh, Forbes reported that in March and April, trends and studies published over these last few months show that employees are 66% more likely to work nights and weekends at home than at the office. But the Bureau of Labor Statistics showed that video games, kids, naps, social media, Netflix, distractions from home, and as one put it, uh, are finding it impossible to stay focused through this year's upheavals. Uh, Ben Weber, who's the president and co-founder of an organizational analytics firm called Humanize, that's H-U-M-A-N-Y-Z-E, stated, if I'm trying to schedule a call in the past, it could have been between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Most of us would have been available. He says, but today that's not the case. It could be that I'm working from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. and available some of those hours. He said, now meetings and rare moments of deep work are punctuated by online shopping, soothing puzzles, and training new pets. In 2013, Yahoo CEO Marissa Mayer uh, said that this has been tried before. She said, we called our employees back to the office in 2013 uh, when we noted that, quote, speed and quality are often sacrificed when we work from home. She wrote this in a widely circulated intra-office memo. When IBM, she said, had tried the original telework pioneer, uh, they followed suit in 2017, and some wondered if work from home was simply a fad. 
A graphic designer named Mariana Paleas, a graphic designer in Minneapolis, stated, I don't know if it's that I'm getting more distracted or taking longer because I'm at home, but I'm definitely taking longer to get things done. So with that cultural and medical uh, insight list, I'm going to move on to the perspective. Um, The uh, rates in the United States right now, I went to all the current CDC statistics, and I just want to give you some some thoughts about numbers. The average state in the U.S. right now has 1,571 people out of every 100,000 that are affected by coronavirus. Out of those states, the average death rate per 100,000 is 50. However, in the northeastern United States and Louisiana, where so much of this broke out early on, the death rates are double that at about 100 per 100,000 people. In my home state of Arkansas, we're about at the national level with 1,636 cases out of every 1,000. But our death rate is only 18 out of every 100,000, which is about a third of what the national average is. So testing per 100,000 population, it's interesting when you look at different states. The highest groups are Rhode Island, New York, and Louisiana, with about 35,000 out of 100,000, or one-third or more of the population, has been screened. The average in the United States is 19,700 per every 100,000, which is about 20%. And Arkansas is right on that average with about 18,600 per every 100,000. And this has been a daily and weekly stress of our governor and our uh, Arkansas Department of Health. The least screen state you might find surprising is Colorado with only 10,000 out of 100,000 people screened, but that's still 10% of the population. So when you look at this as a whole, 20% of the population of our entire country has been screened for COVID, and we're starting to see the results of some of these tests. We talked last week about Indiana. We see that from their study, 44% of a random, that is non-symptomatic, non-sought-out test, when you just screen the population, they screen 2% of their entire population in one swath that 1.78% of all of those 187,000 tests were positive, and that 44% of those positives were completely surprised that they had the disease. We've seen that in the United States, in the Indiana study, it was 9.6 times as many patients who had been infected that knew so or had sought care, or the average state rate of positivity. But we've seen as high as 85% in some areas of California. So when you look at it, approximately 10 to 50-fold the number of positive tests that we see in our country, when shown there are antibodies at a much higher rate, which suggests that the actual infection rate is 10 to 50-fold what is reported. What does that mean? It means that the death rate is 10 to 50 times lower than we suspect because now we're learning the denominator, the actual number of cases or percentage of cases that we have. This is giving us hope that the death rate for COVID is much less and will begin to approach that of influenza. We don't know. And again, it's going to take 18 to 36 months for us to really ferret this out. So some other CDC statistics, the total deaths. Uh, in the United States is 165,617 as of August the 9th. We have had 5,200,000 cases in the United States. The deaths per million population in our country is 500. Now, the deaths in the United States per million population between March the 1st and August the 1st, which is, of course, the, the COVID period, from other causes 
is 3,599, or over seven times the number of deaths from the usual causes, the historical causes, as from COVID. And well over 80% of those deaths are in those above 55 years of age. And fully one-fourth of that 80% were people who had a 50% chance of dying annually prior to COVID. We have lost more people this year to Alzheimer's disease than to COVID. I hope that gives you some idea of what the actual rate is. And I keep saying to people, the news is never going to put this in perspective. They seem to crave no perspective and total sensationalism because they want to keep us glued to the channel. So if you look at the different ages and likeness of mortality at different ages of people in the United States, an infant from zero to one years of age is 588 times more likely to die of other causes than COVID. A preschool child from one to five years of age, 169 times more likely to die of non-COVID causes. A school-age child from the ages of five to 18 is 100 times more likely to die from another cause rather than COVID. A young adult from ages 18 to 35 is about 32 times more likely to die from other things. An adult from 35 to 54 is 13 times more likely to die from natural or usual causes than COVID. And listen to this, 55 to 64 years of age, 11 times more likely to die from natural causes. 65 to 74 years of age, 11 times more likely to die of natural or the usual causes. 75 to 84. 10 times more likely, and still 85 years and older, 11 times more likely to die from usual causes than from coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2 viral infection, and COVID disease. And that is not even removing the chronically ill from the equation, which would make those statistics even much better for the healthy. Now to our region, save for last. The Twin Lakes White River Watershed update for Stone, Baxter, Independent, Sharp, Fulton, and Izzard counties. With a total population of 133,670, we have had 863 cases of COVID since March the 1st. Our COVID deaths, thankfully, have stayed at eight for the region. There have been no new deaths since our last report. In the last 24 hours in Stone County first, we've had three new cases. Over the last 14 days, 35% or 25 out of our 67 cases for the entire pandemic. We've had no new deaths in the last four weeks. We have 51 of 67 recovered, leaving only 15 active cases. And the observation is just don't let your guard down yet, folks. Don't stop using masks. Think about the other person and just hold for about six weeks and let's get these kids into school. And let's make sure we're giving everybody their best chance to begin to get back to a normal lifestyle. In Baxter County, we've only had two new cases over the last 24 hours. We have had 57 of 71 recovered. We only have 14 active cases. Over the last 14 days, they are down to 16 out of the 71 total cases, with about 20% of the cases over the last two weeks for the entire pandemic. The observations there are, thankfully, no deaths. Active cases are decreased from about 20% down to 15% and trending downward. Izzard County, we've had two new cases over the last 24 hours. We've had 40 of 53 recovered with only 10 active cases. Out of the last 14 days of the entire pandemic, we've had 18 of the 53 cases, and they're stable at about 35% of the cases over the last two weeks. They have had one total death with no deaths in the last two months. They've had eight new cases in the last week, down from 10 the prior week, and they are stable. Sharp County, 
Over the last 24 hours, they've had two new cases. They recovered 91 of the 113. They only have 17 active cases in their county. Over the last 14 days, they are down to 20% of their total pandemic cases with 23 of 113 over the last two weeks. They've had no deaths, thankfully, since July the 10th, and they are slowly improving with zero to two cases a day over the last week rather than the one to three cases they were experiencing in the prior week. They are having nine new cases over the last seven days, down from 14 previously. Fulton County. They have had six new cases over the last 24 hours and 12 new cases over the last 48 with 15 active cases. They have 27 of 42 uh, cases recovered, and but they have had 19 cases out of their 42 over the last two weeks with a big spike over the last week with 16 new cases in the last seven days, up from only four the prior week. So they've had 45% of their total pandemic cases over the last two weeks. And finally, Independence County, which has really suffered lately. They have had 10 to 12 new cases over the last 24 to 48 hours. They have recovered 298 out of 517 cases. They have had slightly increased active cases from 210 to 218. They have had 294 of their total 517 cases over the last 14 days out of the entire pandemic. And their major spike, thankfully, is beginning to improve down from a 70% of those total cases in that two weeks of the pandemic. Now they're down to below 60%. The good news is no new deaths, and their average cases are holding at around 20. So the summary for our region We are seeing that we've had 564 of 863 cases recovered, no new deaths in our region over the last four to five days. We've had 289 active cases, 75% sadly of those are still in Independence County with their major outbreak. All other counties in our region are less than 17 active cases. Over the last 24 hours, we're showing a slight improvement, and our rate of our 100,000 population is up to about 1,000 per 100,000, but that's still about 40% less than the rest of Arkansas and the United States as a whole county per county. The trends in the region are, from all the hospitals that I could get information from, about 35 to 50% bed availability. ICU availability seems to be up over 50%. Ventilator availability is is 90 to 95%, so we're well done with that. And folks, consider yourself up to date and on the bleeding edge of medical, scientific, and cultural issues with COVID for the region, the country, and the world. And I'll see you hopefully on Friday with a new weekend update. And it's good to talk to you. I'm glad you listened. See you next time. (laughs) Ha ha! Woo!